you are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. Okay, to restart our session. So welcome everyone. Good afternoon from Tokyo, Japan. I know we've got lots of people joining us uh, from around the world. Uh, so good, good morning and good evening, depending on where you are calling in from today. It's so great to see people joining us from across sectors and across continents. Thank you very much for joining our session. My name is Reiji Ikeda, a probation officer, Ministry of Justice of Japan. I am organizer of this session. I am excited to discuss the impact of volunteer engagement with amazing speakers, Carol, Marian, Chim, thank you so much for joining this session. Uh, today, uh, first of all, I'm going to talk about the volunteer probation officer system in Japan. Next, for the issues related to volunteer management, three UK speakers will share academic and practitioners' perspectives. Finally, I will reflect on this discussion. So let me share my screen. Oh, sorry. Sorry, yes. Okay. Okay. First of all, I am going to talk about the service delivery mechanism of community supervision in Japan. Uh, in Japan, probation service users are supervised by a probation officer and a volunteer probation officer called Hogoshi. Probation officers are national civil servant. Hogoshi is just volunteer. Hogoshi provides monitoring, uh, mentoring, so monitoring and support according to the case management plan prepared by the responsible probation officer. In other words, part of the responsibilities of the probation officers is delegated to the volunteer. Hogoshi are not paid a salary. As for contact, service users are required to make appointments with the Hogoshi monthly. Some users, such as drug offenders and sex offenders, need to receive cognitive behavioral therapy uh, by professional probation officers. Next slide. Uh, this is a brief history of volunteer engagement in the offender rehabilitation. It can be traced back as early as the 1880s. The Shizuoka Prefecture released prisoner protection company, namely a private halfway house, was established. The company provided residential support for ex-prisoners with many volunteer workers. These great efforts are said to be a forerunner of volunteer probation officer system in Japan. Next slide. Uh, this is the data from the Ministry of Justice of Japan White Paper on Crime 2020. 
It shows the age groups and occupations of volunteer probation officers. Hogoshi. As of 2020, uh, 46,763. Uh, and uh, for your information, the number of professional probation officers was almost 1,100. The Hogoshi average age was 68.1. In 2020. Next slide. Yeah, I'm going to comment the benefits of volunteer engagement. Not only Hogoshi in Japan, but many sorts of volunteers have also been involved in their offender rehabilitation process. Offenders could have a sense of belonging through interactive relationships with volunteers. Volunteers' engagement will be a catalyst for forming a non-criminal identity. More importantly, volunteers can mobilize informal networks in the community. Annually, volunteer probation officers carry out the campaign for public understanding of offender reintegration. In 2019, almost 3 million people joined in this campaign. As such, uh, the voluntary sector plays a vital role in offenders' digestance directory and indirectly, but there are a couple of issues that we are facing. Firstly, a demographic change in probation service users. Looking at caseload by category, the number and the proportion of difficulties in reintegrating into society are increasing. This change has an impact on the service delivery mechanism in Japan. More complicated. Next slide. Secondary, the difficulties in the volunteer recruitment. The number of hogoshi is declining. The most common reason to refuse is lack of time, no time. From now, we are going to discuss two discussions. What are the benefits of volunteer engagement? How can we mobilize volunteers in practice? Here, I am going to hand over to Marion, who is going to introduce uh, experience and great insight. Thank you, Marion. Thank you very much, um, uh, Reggie. And I just wanted to introduce myself. Um, I've had a career in uh, probation uh, all my life, and I'm currently the acting chair of the Probation Institute, as well as uh, being a trustee for CAS Plus, about which you'll hear more later on. So uh, this is a very personal <clears throat> story, I think, about volunteers in the probation service. The probation service in England and Wales is over 100 years old, and it has its roots in voluntary service. There were police court missionaries and discharged prisoners' aid societies. 
When I joined in the 70s, it had become a public service with social work trained staff and oversight by local committees, largely magistrates and a judge. Often you joined the probation service by being a volunteer first, which I did working in San Francisco with the probation and voluntary services. I then served a year as an unqualified officer before going for training, again, a common route. Throughout my career from 1975 to 2010, probation practice involved working with volunteers and, of course, with voluntary organisations. Examples were the teams of volunteers that helped us run probation day centres, groups, and they offered individuals practical and emotional support. They visited probationers at home and helped them get to various agencies jobs jobs and activities. Volunteers, of course, would have local links to accommodation and employment, for example, that were very useful. We also encouraged those on supervision to become probation volunteers and then perhaps probation officers, and some did. I worked in Her Majesty's Prison Parkhurst for five years in the late 1980s when it was a top security prison. We had an active group of volunteers who visited the prisoners and helped them develop interests during their long sentences, as well as preparing for release. Many helped to run the visitor's centre, which had a tea bar and a creche for visiting children. Clearly, security was paramount, and we had to guard against volunteers becoming too close to prisoners and perhaps being manipulated by them. And that did happen sometimes, but generally they were a very valuable contact with the outside world. When I became chief officer in Devon and Cornwall probation area in 2001, we had around 500 staff and 100 volunteers. And this is the reverse proportion, of course, to Japan, but it still marks a significant voluntary involvement albeit working closely with the supervising probation officers. I believe the responsibility for the case was more closely held by the probation officer than in Japan, uh, particularly with the lower risk offenders. But there are a lot of similarities in the organisation and deployment of volunteers. Having someone who wasn't paid to take an interest in your life meant a lot to those who had a low sense of self-worth and belief. Our probation organiser, Bob, recruited, trained and supported volunteers for the service. Volunteers also worked alongside supervisees on community service tasks, working without pay, on tasks that benefited local communities. And the results, the research results from positive community service placements were and still remain encouraging. It's interesting that results from more punitive work gang, unpaid work, have proved less effective. But the involvement of volunteers is critical. I can't speak without authority about the last 12 years in probation, as I've been doing international probation development including, by the way, producing a volunteer training manual for the Romanian Probation Service. However, 
My impression is that volunteers are not used here in England and Wales to the same extent that they were, although I have to say the involvement of service users, of people who've experienced supervision, has grown, and that's a really good sign. Now, volunteers need a significant investment of time so that the right people are recruited, trained, and supported. So they should not be seen as a quick or a cheap fix. However, they repay the investment hugely and can give valuable time to those under supervision, which is not possible for the supervisor. And I know Reggie's comment about time, I mean, time is the most valuable resource here. Oversight is important as boundaries and confidentiality can become problematic, but mostly it works really well. It's particularly helpful to have volunteers from similar backgrounds and cultural groups as those under supervision. This diversity of volunteers improved over my career, but there's still work to be done to attract a wide range of people. I believe having committees of probation volunteers in each region, as they have in in Japan, would be a way of reinvigorating probation voluntary work. Now, I want to finish by describing a volunteer initiative that led to the creation of the community courts in Devon and Cornwall, and later to CAS Plus. I had visited Brooklyn, where I saw the community court operating very successfully under Judge Alex Calabrese. I persuaded him to come to the UK and speak at a criminal justice conference in 2005, together with Judge David Fletcher from the Liverpool Community Court. They hadn't met before that. Magistrates were convinced of the benefits of the model, which used close links with communities and agencies to resolve defendants' underlying problems. We then set up the community courts in our area. One feature, which I'd previously experienced in Hampshire, was a volunteer-run advice service to support those people appearing that day in court and their families. And this was in addition to the multi-agency team of probation, police, and to the magistrates who ran the community court. And this community advice service grew into CAS Plus, which my colleague, Carol Edwards, is now going to describe for you in more detail. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks, Marianne. Um, So at the time that CAS Plus as a new court service was being launched, I had trained to be a probation volunteer. But I had also, alongside that, trained to volunteer at a local prison. Prison volunteering led me very quickly to a paid role as a family support worker. And this took me onto the wings of the prison, but also had me working with families as they came through prison visit centres and also out into their communities. So both roles helped me to, to develop huge insight into offender support and the impact of offending on offenders' families and the various points that they're all at within the criminal justice system. CAS Plus was launched, as Marianne described, in 2005. Uh, so much to my surprise and delight, I was offered the job to lead this new initiative. And I am now 17 years later on its chief executive. 
Cast Plus was created to plug the gaps in offender support. Our English system focuses on providing support to those who meet the threshold for probation or prisons with very little offered to low-level, low-risk offenders. Cast Plus helps to address the complex needs that underpin offending behaviours and by doing so reduces the risk of reoffending and improves people's well-being and life choices. Our experience is that low-level offenders' needs mirror those of higher-risk offenders. At its most basic level, we support people through the court process, most important for those who are first-timers and who don't understand the system. We offer advice, support and guidance through a range of issues. It could be homelessness, drugs and alcohol, debt, benefits, employment, the list goes on. And every person presents with different needs. Some issues crop up regularly, but every day has the potential to bring something different through our doors. Our teams have a wealth of experience of dealing with these issues. And so a lot of support comes directly from them. But the final layering of our work comes when we generate structured and supported referrals to the broad range of services that we have available to us in local communities. And we rely on those relationships and we work hard to create trusted and effective coordination of those referral pathways to achieve the best outcomes for individuals. A key element of our work is that it's delivered by a charity. I see us as a beacon of light within a system that is punitive and where people are being done to. Our clients engage voluntarily and do so because they're in crisis. So we really are a window of opportunity for change. Criminal justice partners refer people to us, but we also approach them in the public areas of courts and accompany them into courtrooms. But one of the strongest elements of our work is that services are delivered mainly by volunteers. CAS Plus works with around 150 individuals each month across four court sites. We have only six frontline staff and seven additional staff who cover administration or strategic functions. At any one time, we support a much larger team of between about 30 to 35 court-based volunteers. Now, my understanding of the Japanese system is that probation volunteers are mostly aged over 60, but our experience with local volunteers is that young people are hugely invested in volunteering within criminal justice. Strong links with our local universities mean that we offer an almost unique opportunity to bring learning into practice for criminology and law students. We take social care students on structured placements for their courses. This draws a small amount of income into the charity, but relationships with the universities have also generated additional projects to support both partners over the years, helping us to learn about and support each other's worlds. Young people transitioning through CAS Plus tend to do so because they are on a pathway to further studies or employment. They tend to work with us for between 12 to 20, uh, 24 months because they aspire to work. We're proud to have been a part of their journey into their chosen professions. And many of them are now working in prisons, 
police and probation settings, many are active social workers and many are working within the support service services that they've learned about through their CASPLUS volunteering. Volunteers come from all walks of life. So retired magistrates, retired solicitors, people looking for a career change, people who simply want to be useful and have time and skills to offer. But most critically, people who have lived through the experience of criminal justice and want to give back. We actively encourage this type of volunteer. And whilst each person brings their own contribution to what we do, someone with lived experience brings an additional dynamic, one that is valued by us as an organisation and by the colleagues that they work alongside. And we are most proud of the progress that these particular volunteers have made. Volunteers tend to be drawn from local communities, so they bring fresh knowledge of new services each time someone joins us. A new volunteer brings a new pair of eyes on who we are and what we do every time we recruit. And CASPLUS has grown because we've encouraged volunteer involvement in developing the charity at every level. Clients know they're being supported by volunteers when they engage with us, as I suspect they do in the Japanese system. Some clients can be dealt with relatively quickly, but most need time and to build trust to be able to deal with difficult, sensitive and challenging issues. Using volunteers means that we can offer flexibility and give people the attention they need and I would argue often deserve. This changes the dynamics of how they respond in a court setting where everyone is telling them what to do. Volunteers work alongside us because they want to, and this ethos transmits directly to clients who don't expect support from within this often frightening and often life-affecting environment. Volunteering with offenders is challenging and exhausting, there's no doubt, especially when behaviours are embedded. But we know that support from volunteers can help people to turn their lives around. It's motivational and it comes from real empathy rather than from a paid worker who might come across as simply ticking a box. Our use of volunteers helps us to deliver best value. They provide an average 150 hours of support every week alongside their staff colleagues. Now, volunteers aren't a free resource, but if we shifted our working model from being volunteer led, our staff budget would double making the model harder to sustain, especially as we rely on grants rather than government funding. Many volunteers attribute their progress into the workplace to the learning environment that we've provided at course. And so I am as strong an advocate for volunteering as I am for the clients that we work with, and I'm equally proud of all their journeys. Um, and I shouldn't finish without mentioning trustees who should be factored into any conversation regarding volunteering. They definitely help to steer our charity. And although they're a constituted requirement for our charitable status, I particularly value the strategic support that I gain from their involvement. And that is certainly what has driven this conversation and our involvement in this conversation today. Thank you. Hello. Um I will share the screen. Hopefully that is clear. Uh, my name's Tim Auburn. 
Um, I am one of the trustees that Carol has just mentioned. I'm currently chair of the board of trustees um, and uh, a retired academic. I was at the School of Psychology at the University of Plymouth. Um, and uh, I want to describe a small part of the project which piggybacked on the criminal, uh, sorry, the Community Justice Court, which Marianne mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, we were looking at the role of CAS in the criminal, uh, the community justice course. Our main aim was about, about looking at how volunteers who staff the problem-solving meetings, which form part of that community justice course, engage with offenders. And I hope really to show how the, the importance of looking at the fine-grained detail of volunteer uh, engagement. Um, yeah. Um, as uh, has been said, problem solving is one of the core activities of the CAS Plus volunteers. Um, and the main aim is to identify problems um, and in order, of, of the offenders. And in order to do so, clearly people who are starting those uh, meetings, volunteers and the staff, need to elicit information. And the basic way of doing this is to ask questions. Um, in this project, we focus on eliciting information about mental ill health, um, largely because, as we know, mental ill health problems are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So this project uh, was, uh, was based in the court. We recorded, audio recorded, a number of problem-solving meetings and transcribed those. And we used a methodology called conversation analysis to look at what goes on in those meetings. Uh, and we selected out particularly those occasions where the topic of mental health was had been raised by the people running the problem-solving meeting. Um, going, uh, just going back, um, eliciting information is largely done through questions, uh, but questions are complicated things. Uh, they involve multiple actions. They can take a wide range of forms, for example, open to close questions, yes, no questions, tag questions, and they form an important part of institutional settings, such as the uh, community justice court or problem solving. Questions set agendas. Uh, they embody presuppositions. They convey how much you know, the epistemic stance of the person who's asking the question. And the way the question is asked, as we'll see in a minute, incorporates a number of preferences about how that should be answered. Um, when we analysed um, how the topic of mental health was raised, we found there were four main different types of question, and I'll illustrate these in a minute. Uh, one was a content question, what's commonly called a WH questions, what, where, why, how, uh, cascade questions, which is where people follow up an open question with a more tightly conceived um, follow-up question. Um, and then, so there were two types of those. And then a, what we called a prime form top, topicalization, where people brought to the question what they'd learned earlier on, either through the courts or through an earlier part of the interview. And what we found was that these questions lie on a continuum from what we called optimization or what has been called optimization to problem attentiveness, and I'll explain those um, in a few moments. So a content question, uh, this is an example of that. 
Um, and we can see here that, that we transcribed it in a very technical way using conversation analysis. But you can see the person running the problem solving meeting says, OK, um, what, how's your general health? And the offender says, fine. And they follow it up. And mental health, fine, in my opinion. Right. So a simple content question. Uh, then the second type was the cascade question, which we said with a negative polarity item. I'll explain that in a minute. So we've got two questions here. The person asking the questions, the problem solving person running the problem solving group says, OK, what about your mental health? Second question cascaded. Following on from that, have you ever suffered from depression or anxiety, panic attacks? The offender says no. Um, the negative polarity item is where they say, have you ever suffered? Right. So it's these terms which, which condition the question or give a particular tenor to the question and expect uh, a no answer there. It sets up a preference for how that should be answered. So these two types of question promote what's called optimization. They set a preference for the way the person answers as a no problem response. They're optimistically framed um, so that problems are not uh, uh, um, developed in the answer. So, and we can see there with both of those um, answers that the offender gave to those questions, they were no problem answers. They were fine, or they didn't had any, hadn't ever suffered from any of those problems of depression or anxiety. An optimization says that this, this principle embodies an unless there is some specific reason not to do so, this was originally developed in doctor-patient communication, questioning should be allowed, designed to allow patients to confirm optimistically framed uh, expectations about themselves and their circumstances. So those two questions have an optimistic um, tenor to them. The second set of uh, second two questions, a cascade with a straight inter interrogative. And here we can see a set of four questions here. Okay, what about your mental health? Do you suffer from depression? No answer. Or stress? The offender starts not, you seem quite low if you don't mind me saying. And then the offender says, it's because I've got, I'm not saying I feel depressed, but I do reckon I'm autistic. Okay. Um, and then the straight interrogative is the follow-up, do you suffer from depression? You notice there's no term like ever in there or a similar um, a term like that we saw in the previous example. Do you have suffered from it's a straight yes-no question? And then the fourth type, the prior informed topicalization. I've got two examples of this. The first, did you say you suffer from depression? So picking up something from an earlier part of the interview. As a result of your mental health, did you say you suffer from depression? Yeah, I've suffered. And then they go on and explain that how they have suffered that. And as a second example, um, your general health and your mental health, obviously very much affected by your alco alcoholism, aren't they? Tag question there. Um, and the offender starts saying, yeah, yeah, uh, depression, uh, um, um, sorry. Uh, and the, uh, the problem solver goes on, depression, yeah. Paranoia, the offender says, yeah, very paranoid. That's smoking weed and shit like that. Yeah. So these questions are more problematic. Um, there's a preference for agreement with the way in which the problem has been elaborated. It allows for the person who's um, 
uh, who's being questioned for allows them to elaborate and expand. And the questioner displays a stronger understanding of the client's circumstances. Okay. Um, and these questions are designed to be attentive to symptoms already identified. They presuppose a problem. Okay, and if we look at um, just a little, uh, uh, little bit of statistics, you can see how these questions, types of questions, uh, produce different responses. So in the next turn, does the uh, offender either confirm or claim that they have a mental health problem? With the optimizing questions, they're more likely to say no. With the problem attentive questions, they're more likely to say yes and elaborate on a problem. So we felt that this is um, is um, an uh, interesting set of findings, which have implications for how you might train or develop volunteers um, to be more attentive to the way in which they engage with uh, offenders during problem-solving meetings. So how you ask a question is inter interactionally constitutes um, how the person is going to respond. So it's the type of question and the normative constraints on how someone might respond to that. Um, and the implications of that question design, um, I think, have implica um, are implicative for how training of problem-solved team members and volunteers might develop. Um, and the problem-solving meeting, the sorts of questions that are asked in that, we feel are important resources, which, as Carol has described, fill gaps in the provision of these hard-to-reach social groups. The only other thing I should mention is that, of course, these are not randomly asked questions, but the person who asks the questions designs them for what they feel they understand about the person they're asking. So they're not random, but it's, I think, it's nevertheless still important to develop an understanding of how different question types have implications for how the trajectory of the problem-solving meeting might evolve. And just say, if you want to read a bit more about this, there's our chapter in this book, which elaborates on this in much more detail. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, Tim. And uh, thank you very much for such amazing insight and a richer discussion, everyone. As shown in CAS practice, a better social outcome can be achieved by mobilizing volunteer effectively. Uh, finally, from my experience, I would like to comment one point, the importance of the culture of collaboration and relational working with volunteers. As Marion mentioned, uh, Japanese probation officers invest a lot of time and effort in communicating with volunteers so that they can well work well with offenders. More importantly, in the long term, volunteer engagement can spread a belief in redeemed ability, namely beliefs about the ability of offenders to change their ways in the community. In my opinion, such cultural aspect could be an impetus for offenders' decisions. I'm happy to join the international practitioners community through Insight 22. If you need more information about 
the Japanese Offender Rehabilitation Service and Cast Plus. Please contact me. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. You have been listening to the INCJ podcast. Conversations about international criminal justice. To find out more, go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.